My name is Martijn de Waal. I'm a uh, researcher at the research group of uh, play and civic media at the Amsterdam University of Applied Sciences. And I was invited by Koen Frenke, who organized this um, panel, to moderate uh, today. And it's a, it's a great honor to do that. Um, the theme of the whole conference is, of course, is open societies and new institutions. And in this panel, we will talk about the role of ICT. And, and more particularly, we're going to um, make that more concrete by focusing on platforms. Uh, the rise of all kinds of platforms as sites for interaction in all kinds, uh, all domains of society that we've seen over the last decade, half a decade or so. And I think you can easily imagine a lot of the debates that are out there, for example, in the transport section, uh, in the domain of transport. We've seen dom the debates worldwide about Uber in the domain of travel. We've seen lots of debates about uh, the role of Airbnb in the organization of of tourism. I think those are the most uh, prevalent discussion at the moment. But there's much more um, other kinds of society that are also influenced by the rise of platforms. I think, for example, of education, where platforms like Coursera or edX have started to play an, an important role, or health, where platforms like uh, Fitbit or, or the, the Apple Watch are also starting to play an increasing role in managing data about your health. And I guess it's fair to say that, you know, from the very, very private sphere, like dating through apps like Tinder, to the very public, um, you know, think about, for example, the role of social networks like Facebook in the distribution of news and fake news in the election that, you know, across that whole spectrum, platforms have started to play an important role in, in society. And today what we want to do with this panel is look at platforms as a new type of institution, explore the question uh, to what extent can we understand them as a new institution. And I think there are some interesting reasons why we could do that. I mean, platforms, you know, on a, on a very sort of um, essence level, what they do is they match demand and supply in all these um, domains of society that, that, we, that, that I just discussed. Uh, but they do more. They're not just neutral connectors, right? In the process of connecting, they set standards and protocols. Uh, they, they determine the rules of engagement for all the, for the, for all the actors. Uh, they organize and manage our identities and, and reputations. And they provide, I guess you could say, the technological infrastructure for many parts um, in our society, uh, even uh, taxing some of its users uh, by charging 20 or 30 percent commission to make use of that, that of, of that infrastructure. And we're not just talking about an economic infrastructure, we're also talking about a civic infrastructure, right? Uh, the way that we um, inform ourselves, the way we get our news, uh, the way we organize our public debate, etc., etc. And I guess as such, these platforms as institutions, they take over some roles um, that were um, previously or are still, are still being undertaken by traditional institutions. Uh, uh, for example, um, many of the platforms, they claim that, okay, now we have reputation systems, we don't need government's regulations or supervisory boards that much anymore, right? Or uh, rather than getting our news or selection of news through the New York Times or the Volkskrant in the Netherlands, uh, we get it through the editing algorithms of, of, of Facebook. So, so these institutions, these platforms play an important role, and I think 
what's important there is that many of those older institutions that are, of course, still doing, uh, organizing many of those interactions, uh, um, what's interesting about those is that they have some set ways, uh, they, they've been here for a long time already, um, to safeguard public values like quality, accessibility, accessibility, uh, safety. They have all kinds of protocols through which they organize transparency, accountability, etc., etc. But how is that organized in these new institutions? Right? How are they uh, safeguarding those public values in the way they set their protocols? Um, and another important question, I think, uh, for, this platform, for this panel today is, uh, how can traditional institutions um, interface with these new kind of platforms? Um, these are some questions that we will discuss today, and we have an excellent panel uh, to do that. I'm very, uh, very excited to introduce them to you. We have uh, Jose van Dijk uh, on your left. Jose is a distinguished university professor here at Utrecht University, and she's the author of The Culture of Connectivity, A Critical History of Social Media, and uh, also of the book uh, The Platform Society, The Struggle for Public Values in an Online World. The Dutch version of that book appeared last uh, November, and the English version of the book um, is in the works and will appear somewhere next year. That's Jose van Dijk. Welcome, Jose. Um, next to her we have Haroon Sheikh, and Haroon is an assistant professor at the Free University in Amsterdam, assistant professor in philosophy. He's also head of research at the think tank Freedom Lab and a regular contributor to uh, Dutch national media like the NRC Handelsblad and the Financial Times or Het Financiële Dagblad. Um, and he also, also published a book called The Rise of the East, Eurasic, uh, Eurasia and the New World Order. And then all the way on your right we have Frederick Soderquist uh, from Sweden. Um, he is an economist at the Swedish white collar trade union Unionen and he's currently involved also in a PhD program in industrial economy at the Blekinge Institute of Technology and also a former expert, expert to the Swedish government's digitization commission. So I think people who are, are very well uh, positioned to talk about uh, the role of these platforms as institutions and the way that we can organize our public values through these institutions. Um, the setup of this program is that each of the three speakers will have about 10 minutes to give a brief introduction. After that, we have three particular themes that that, ha that, that we want to sort of dive a little bit deeper in them. We have a discussion uh, between the panelists, and after that, for the last 20 or 30 minutes, we'll have an open discussion and involve all of you uh, from the audience. That's it for me. Um, thank you for your attention, but more important, uh, I'd like to give the word uh, to the panel, and Jose, I would like to invite you to uh, start by uh, giving us your vision on the emergence of a platform society. Thank you very much, uh, Martijn. And he's very modest, but he forgot to mention that he's a co-author of the last book that we have written, So, but I wanted to add that. Um, online platforms, as you probably all know, have deeply infiltrated in the daily lives of many of us. They've actually come to define more or less our societies and more basically our democracies. So you might say that Western society are governed through institutions and they're the pillars of our social and legal order. But when most of our economic and social activities move from offline to online, 
to online context, what does this actually mean for our institutions, for our sectors and our professional codes? So my basic question for my 10-minute introduction is, are platforms actually replacing or bypassing institutions? Or are they perhaps gradually merging with institutions? But in order to answer that question, we need to first look at a platform ecosystem, how it is structured and how it is governed. Now, I can't explain that in 10 minutes, but I'll, uh, I will give one example of a sector in which I think this uh, is manifest. Now, first of all, the online world, as you probably all know, is it runs basically on an American-based platform ecosystem. And that ecosystem is operated by what we call the big five, the big five corporate players. Of course, Google Alphabet, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, and Microsoft. And they operate a, a strategic online infrastructure of information services that function more or less like a utility, like utilities. For instance, social networks, web hosting, uh, pay systems, ID services, cloud services, advertising services, uh, search engines, maps, app stores, navigation systems, video hosting, mail systems, and there's pretty much like, you know, something between 70 and 100 of those basic infrastructural information services. Now, they're not just services, but they tend to act as gatekeepers or, you know, to all of our social and economic activities. And societies across the globe, but most certainly in Europe, they have come to depend on these online platforms, uh, the platform infrastructure for organize our, to organize our society online. Now, all of our sectors, both private and public, are gradually moving towards this online infrastructure. And let me give you one specific, zoom in on one specific example, which is news. The news, of course, news uh, organizations, they're a private sector, but a private sector with a large public responsibility. And the big five influence this sector in several ways, but most of all, of course, news content producers, they have become pretty much dependent on their information services, like Facebook and Google for ads, for distribution, for data analytics, for web servers, ID systems, and a lot more. Beyond that, the big five has all, have also developed, and they do this for most sectors, sector-specific aggregators. Like Facebook has instant articles, for instance, and newsfeed. Google has Google News. Apple has Apple News. Pretty much, I don't know if you're familiar with this figure, but pretty much 50% of all Americans get their news through Facebook. And that's tremendous. Now, I'm not even counting, you know, the other aggregators like Apple News and uh, Google News. And these aggregators, they do not just produce news content, they're connectors. They're basically unbundling and then rebundling news and ads produced by content providers. And we call those complementers. Here are some of the complementers. Complementers come in two kinds. Complementers can be digitally born platforms, like you see here, the Huffington Post, Upward, Upworthy, BuzzFeed, Breitbart News, there's a large number of others. But they can also be, in you know, many ways, they're also legacy news corporations that are often running their own digital platforms, like the New York Times and the Washington Post, and of course, their content is now mostly distributed through those aggregators uh, of the big five. Now, increasingly, the big five are also starting to buy up or to 
um, uh, to start their own sectoral complementers. Think, for instance, here in this figure, the Washington Post is now owned by Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon. And there have been plenty of examples over the past few months. Uh, Amazon buying up Whole Foods, for instance. I could go on and on. You constantly see these, um, you know, these sectoral uh, complementers that they're either buying up or that they're starting themselves. Now let's stick for a minute to news media. And the complementers in news media, they can be considered, um, well, pretty much a societal institution. We also call that the fourth estate. They're responsible for certain values, as you know, for instance, comprehensive news reporting, but also accurate news reporting. Now, last November, in 20, in about a year ago, after the US election, Facebook, most prominently, came under fire for the creation of filter bubbles and the spreading of fake news. And at that moment, Mark Zuckerberg really came to the, to the defense, of course, of Facebook, saying, hey, Facebook is not a media company. We do not produce news, so we're not responsible for those particular value. So we create value by unbundling and rebundling news content, and we're connecting readers to advertisers, to, you know, to content. So, in other words, Mark Zuckerberg said, we're not responsible for these you know, social and institutional values. We simply do not create a new, so we're sort of odd ducks in this system. So here's the paradox, the paradox that I would like to point out. If platforms, and then of course also the, plat the, the algorithms and the business models that are part of these uh, platforms, are they replacing or bypassing institutions? And if that's the case, who is taking care of public values? That's a question that really, you know, is very profound to the development of this infrastructural uh, online system. Now, what are public values? That's a huge question, of course. I, you know, can't go into that uh, in 10 minutes, but I'm pretty sure that citizens want platforms to take their fair share of responsibilities for values like security, for transparency, for accuracy, and for privacy. But societies also want platforms to be fair, to be inclusive, to be responsible, to be accountable, to be democratic. So there's a lot of these values that come up in terms of, you know, who takes care of public values if it's not taking place within our institutional frameworks. Now, historically, these kind of public values were always anchored in institutions, in sectors, in laws, in, you know, professional codes. But public values, one thing, of course, that we all know is that it's not a set of values that is, you know, preset that we've already discussed and now they're set, sort of put in stone, you know, set in stone in laws. They're actually fiercely embedded, and that is something that we're currently seeing right now in all of these sectors, public values and their implementation in online infrastructure is something that is fiercely embedded. The platformization, as we call it, the platformization of society means that values are actually negotiated in all sectors, public and private, and here you see some of these sectors with the big five squarely in the middle. Sectors like health, like education, and also, you know, sectors like finance, retail, the hospitality sector, but also a simple thing on a very basic level, neighborhood apps. They're now currently being infiltrated by, you know, uh, platforms, online platforms. 
And that negotiation about public values takes place at all levels, takes place at single institutions, for instance, in schools or in hospitals, deciding which infrastructural information service they are going to use. At the local level, think about city governments trying to decide how to deal with Airbnb, for instance. At the state level, uh, Germany, for instance, over the past few months has decided how to encapsulate platforms in deciding what is fake news. Or at the supranational level, think about the big fine that Google was just given to um, uh, uh, for in antitrust uh, allegations. So what we're seeing currently is you know, a lot of clashes between state, market, and civil society actors about power, about responsibilities. And that currently, you know, that platform system is governed by the five, the big five uh, market players that I just pointed out, whose algorithms and business models are profoundly intransparent. While at the same time, they're pretty much transforming the structure of our institutions. So my question for this panel is, how do we deal with these, you know, uh, uh, well, with this, the strategies of platformization? How can we govern platforms and how can we help plat the online society to move towards a fair and democratic society? So those are just some of the questions I would like to pose to the panel and I hope um, you will be uh, thinking about that with us. Thank you. Well, thank you, Jose. Thanks for your, your great introduction. Um, I think two or three points that, that are really of importance for, for the rest of this panel. I think first, you know, we started by saying that we have all these platforms that are uh, starting to organize parts of our society. Uh, but what you've been showing is that we shouldn't just talk about the single platforms like uh, Uber or Coursera or Fitbit, or but all those platforms are actually connected uh, on a higher level. We use Facebook to log in to all these other platforms. Uh, Google is collecting data about us across those platforms. So those big five, they really provide the infrastructure of the underlying platforms. And another point that I took away from your presentation that I found really interesting is that many of those platforms, they operate in a particular domain. Uh, you gave the example of news. But at the same time, um, they claim that they are not part of the news sector, right? They say, no, we're just a connector. But um, what does that mean for the responsibilities that were traditionally uh, uh, taken up by the news sector themselves, right? What, 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 what happens with fair and accountable news coverage, for, 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 uh, for example? Um, now, to make a bit of a bridge to our second speaker, uh, Frederick Soderquist, um, you are part of a union, which is one of the uh, traditional institutions in society that helps to uh, bring out uh, public values, to engage with uh, market forces, governments, um, um, uh, to, to talk about how we organize labor in, in society. Also, in your domain, you've seen the rise of platforms, um, and that has brought about a lot of discussion about how do we organize labor in a platform society. And I'd like to give you um, the floor to talk more about that. Well, thank you. Well, if we start by thinking about the rise of platforms, and this is mainly, I'd say, a rise of platforms in the media. It's an extremely interesting phenomenon to be watching. But if we look at the statistics of labor platforms, so platforms purveying tasks of some sort, 
uh, we see that it's actually a very small proportion of the population that are getting work this way. Uh, there was a study carried out by the uh, Foundation of European Progressive Studies that did a comparative study of different European countries that showed that in Sweden 12% of uh, the labor force has worked on platforms and the same thing in the Netherlands. Now we co-financed that study and there are some problems with it because it also includes platforms that post jobs instead of tasks. So one would hardly make the case that Monster.com is a labor platform, even though it sort of is. but. If we think about the platforms we are actually reading about in the news, it's something quite different. So 1% to 2% in Sweden have worked towards one of these platforms in some way, uh, and it seems very few of them do it as a full-time income. It's mainly a supplementary income. So why are we paying so much attention to this question? We have 640,000 members in Sweden. I think about 560,000 are uh, in normal jobs, 10,000 are self-employed, and then we have students and pensioners. So we have different kinds of membership for different type of groups. But the reason we think this is a big deal is that we see the labor platform as a type of organizational innovation. Uh, and as I was doing my work for, or leading up to that, my work for the Digitalization Commission in Sweden, uh, I mean, I was very, like most here, I think, by Eric Bernielsen and Andrew McAfee's book, The Second Machine Age. Uh, and I think their when they talked about the introduction of, especially the electric engine, like it, at first it just replaced the steam engine and it had the same type of operation in the factory. But then you had a couple of decades, people were getting used to technology. Henry Ford and Frederick Taylor, you know, sort of invented the new way of organizing work in the second industrial revolution. So when I tried to make the connection with, and they, they do it as well in their new book, uh, Machine Platform Crowd, uh, it's that the platform is a type of tool which is a new way of organizing work, right? And it's built on technology, in our phones mainly, I'd say, that could probably be the big future, uh, that wasn't available to us just 10, 15 years ago. Or actually, almost uh, exactly 10 years ago, I think the iPhone is the big icebreaker here. So, I mean, why is this a big deal? Well, first of all, we are going to talk about Uber here, I am sure, because it's very important. Everyone gets bored of Uber, but Uber is important because everyone is watching Uber. Uber is, you know, the archetype of a labor platform. It's an extremely successful business model if you think about number of users and how it's gone from a, a very small startup in the Bay Area to the world's largest taxi company in a very short period of time. So it's an incredibly scalable operation. But it also shows that you can coordinate a decentralized workforce through the use of an algorithm. And this is where, in our view, it gets quite big. And it's an easily imitatable type of business model. I'm not going to say it's easy. I can't program an app myself. But many other firms are trying to become the Uber of market X or Y or Z. So uh, what we're seeing is this is maybe today, even though it's a small share of the population, this type of thinking of using algorithms in order to automate certain aspects of being an employer or a free market, maybe that is a huge innovation because that enables the workforce to become more and more decentralized. And as a trade union, we're in trouble here because <laughs> our model of organizing work, especially around times when collective agreements are running out of time and there might be time to call a strike or something or threatening to call a strike as we do in Sweden and rarely resulting in a strike, uh, 
we, we are built up around the workplace. We are built up around the coffee or fika table, as we say in Sweden. We have our discussions there, and then we get angry, and, but not so angry. We get angry in order to reach a compromise. Um, but above that, the platform, I think, in, we're in early incarnation right now with this, but who's to say in 5, 10 to 15 years that platforms aren't just a normal way of doing business? Because the platform is built up of algorithms. Algorithms are just mathematical instructions for the computer to follow. It follows it every time. What if some aspects of being an employer can be automated this way? And uh, the way that platforms are built today, these are black boxes, right? And this is what we get into today. And it's in our interest that these algorithms follow the collective agreements. That's our prime concern here. If a platform is built to follow the collective agreement in the relevant market on the Swedish labor market, and does so 100% of the time, we might actually get better compliance to the rules that we have negotiated with the employers. Because today, these are legal contracts, really hard to distinguish. Union has, I think, close to 100 collective agreements, I think, in anything ranging from professional ice hockey players to IT professionals to call center uh, people. They all, they're all very different. But if we go back a little bit to the Uber example, I think, and what we're saying is platforms are being used to bypass inst traditional institutions. And this is the big issue that we are going to have to face. We have a set of rules that we own together with the employers, which are our collective agreements that are re-signed every so many years. How can we make it easier for these firms to incorporate the collective agreements into their algorithms? That's our first step. That's our primary objective in this, I'd say. But then, uh, working on the Digitalization Commission, the issue of how can government agencies in Sweden digitalize more efficiently? So the Swedish tax agency is an agency that has been incredibly successful in this process, because what they did was they thought, how can, well, it started out with how can we uh, use IT smarter to collect taxes, but then they had a really entrepreneurial guy there uh, who said, no, how can we use IT to make it easier for people to pay taxes and maybe enjoy paying their taxes a little bit more? So the, I, I was really inspired by this approach. We, if we want rules to actually be easy to follow, we are going to have to use the tools available to us in order to make that happen. But what I'm saying is, in the Uber case, they are in trouble all over the world because they go in and they don't ask for permission, they ask for forgiveness. So what happens if platforms come to more and more markets? We're going to have more and more of these extremely time-consuming and annoying debates about whether you should follow the rules or not, just because you call yourself a sharing platform. I think it's in society's interest to have a type of neutrality of competition. If you have a platform and follow the rules and all your competitors are knocked away, then maybe that's fair. But if you do so by skipping out on regulations and institutions in the society, choosing which rules to pick or not, then we don't have a sustainable situation here. It could actually get quite messy. So what we're thinking, and the work in the, in the, in the Digitalization Commission was quite complicated by the fact that how do we make more agencies do this good journey that the tax authority did? Because there are so many failed examples for that one successful example. Um, I mean, they, they're the fourth or fifth most popular government agency in Sweden. <laughs> they didn't used to be. It's very easy to do your taxes in Sweden, by the way. Took me two minutes on the phone or something. Uh, but the issue is we have, so platform firms will meet regulations in a variety of areas. So for instance then, taxameters, that's a government 
uh, well, it's actually it's, it's a government agency, so it's, which is the Board of Transportation that decides this is what a taxameter looks like, this is how it works, this is to make sure you don't cheat and pay your taxes. But Uber CEO in Sweden said Uber could be a taxameter in the app, and I totally agree with him. It could be, but it's not up to Uber to choose how that works. So what you have to do is you have to create, you have to digitalize the, 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 the regulation which is the taxameter computer and make it into an API so, or a code of some kind. And we might have to do this in more areas. So I will leave you with like our, our ground proposal, but that means because Sweden has such a, you know, the labor unions are very strong, we have 70% union coverage, we have a tradition of solving bigger issues in the labor market that are normally up to legislators in other countries. Perhaps us, the platforms and the unions can take a more active role in digitalizing rules that are outside the collective bargaining regime, doing that together with agencies. So what we have to think about, I, if we want platforms to play by the rules, we have to make the rules more easily available to them. So lower the transaction costs to be good platforms. Thank you. So thanks, Frederick. Um, different sector, uh, the organization of labor, and I think what I, what I heard in your talk, what, what I found really interesting is you said those platforms, although even few people use them today, uh, they might be a new model for the organization of labor uh, in which uh, platforms coordinate a decentralized workforce through algorithms. Right, where basically then in the end we might all become freelancers organized through these platforms, but these platforms are the strong central force that organize that labor. And then of course the question as you posed is, but then who will represent uh, all those freelancers and how can we make sure that uh, though the way the platforms organize labor is really up to the standards that we as a democracy uh, want for our for our labor practices and I've, i you know one really interesting uh, angle that you gave i think was was the example of uber uh, where you say okay then let's let's switch the logic around and where we as a as a government say this is what we think that uh, a taxonometer should look like, um, and this is the code, and you have to implement that in your platform rather than, than the other way around. So I found that I found that very two very interesting points. We'll come back to that in the discussion. Um, we're going to Harun Shaikh uh, first. And um, he's going to bring in the global perspective because so far we've mainly been talking about uh, the big five coming from Silicon Valley organizing our infrastructure of, of platforms. But that's not uh, the only scenario that, that's out there. There is other models uh, through which a platform society uh, could be or is already organized. And Arun um, is going to tell us more about that. Thank you, Martijn. Um, Indeed, that's the question I'd like to raise. Um, it ties in with the previous two presentations. I would like to ask, if we look at all these platforms, what is the type of organization and control behind them? What, what, what effects do they have on power? And so basically what I would like to ask is, who gets empowered by these platforms? Who takes control? Um, and what I would like to present is, I think that uh, if you look at different dynamics globally, you can roughly describe all of them into three scenarios, three different versions of who gets empowered uh, by technology platforms. Um, 
The first one, I think the most obvious one, uh, the one that we see here or deal with mostly here, is the power of large industry private companies, and they take control of platforms internationally. Um, this is, of course, seen in their tremendous unprecedented size. Uh, Facebook recently uh, went through the 2 billion user mark. Uh, Apple has a market cap that is larger than Dutch GDP. Um, so we're talking here about companies that are powerful in many states uh, uh, globally and uh, have this tremendous reach. Um, Jose actually already described this scenario about the, uh, the power of private industry parties taking control of platforms. So let me just add two things which I think are important about their power. Um, I'd say one, one important thing is the extent to which they are concentrated in global markets. Uh, we know that, of course, from specific, uh, very familiar domains, Apple in telephones, Google in search, Amazon in e-commerce. Um, but also when we see within ICT new markets develop, you see these companies are very well prepared to dive into them and quickly dominate them on a global scale. So uh, starting from search and social networks, in the terms of mobile advertising, Google and Facebook dominate that market. They have 75% globally of every advertising dollar earned on mobile phones. Uh, but also think of something like cloud computing, uh, not Amazon's core business, but now together with Microsoft, they dominate this global market. So their concentrated power in specific sectors, that's the thing I'd like to note about these, this industry empowering model. And the second thing um, is the dynamic that we're seeing, and I think that is something that is currently very uh, uh, much in sway, is the strength that these platforms have if they move into another sector, a non-digital sector, the, the tremendous amount of fear that they inspire there, the, 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 the kind of impression that they are kind of like an, an octopus that whenever, whatever they put into their reach, it's squeezed, uh, the life is squeezed out of it. Media, of course, an example where we've seen a lot of this happen. Uh, taxis are an example. Interesting what I see currently is, um, uh, it was mentioned already, uh, recently uh, the, the Amazon acquired Whole Foods in the US, uh, which is a mediocre, medium-sized food retailer in the US. Immediately, you saw the stocks of all kinds of supermarket chains globally decline tremendously, about 10, 20, 30 percent. So there, Apple really hasn't proven anything within the field of food retail, but simply showing that this is their focus, that the gun is pointed at this sector, already creates tremendous uh, fear and, and impact uh, and destroys values within other sectors. I think the car sector is another field where we're seeing this. The, 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 the fact that three big German car companies bought Nokia's mapping platform uh, uh, last year is a move that they feel like if we don't get into this mobile technology quickly, we're just going to become the people who assemble the box and all the value of the car is going to go to these uh, companies uh, in Silicon Valley uh, that provide uh, the, the solutions for autonomous driving. So this is, uh, I think, a plausible scenario. We see this happening around, all around us. But I think there are at least two other scenarios possible of who gets empowered by these platforms. Uh, and the second one is actually empowerment of the state. And this is much more common in Asia, but not exclusive to Asia. Uh, let me give a few examples of this. Uh, this is, of course, the model, uh, or I would suggest the model used by China, 
Um, of course, there also are very large private companies, right? Just like we here have uh, GAFA or the Frightful Five or these type of names. That they have BAT, uh, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent. They, are the, they, they dominate the market. But these companies are overall uh, in line and following uh, government policy. Um, and the government is already using these platforms. So one of the most interesting uh, developments here is, I think, the experiment that they call Sesame Credits which is an experiment that's based on uh, creating a social credit system. So basically what it says, your, your online behavior uh, is marked. Uh, Alibaba is implementing the, this, this experiment. And this, this mark that you get determines the way you get services. So say, if you're playing games all night, that's bad for your mark, it goes down. Uh, if you uh, buy all kinds of irresponsible stuff, it could, uh, lower your chances of getting into a good university. But on the other hand, if you buy diapers or do other kind of stuff that shows you're a responsible citizen, your score goes up. So this is a very subtle instrument, and it's still in a very experimental phase. But I think it's important, because here we could see the germ of a complete reorganization of the welfare state, uh, which, which also ties in with very legitimate concerns, right? We want welfare to go to people who need it, so let's put in personalized information. Um, but it is a system through which, in a very uh, extreme way, the government could tailor its services and, and uh, uh, nudge citizens in, in ways no government has done in the past. Um, it's not just China going on this track, uh, even uh, uh, talking here about open society, even a democratic country like India is also experimenting in this sense. They've launched the Aadhaar system, which is the largest biometric system in the world. Uh, already almost all Indians are in it, so this is more than one billion people. Their iris scans and fingerprints are in this system. Uh, and in, within the Aadhaar system, it's meant as a digital infrastructure to identify individuals and then to link this to all kinds of uh, uh, social services. So this is where you, it's linked to getting your subsidies, getting social security, uh, tax returns, and in the future they want, they're opening the system so they can link your telephone account and basically everything, but in a state-controlled system uh, of identification. Um, Russia, similarly, uh, uh, also uh, I think there is the developments like uh, um, the fact that recently they announced all kinds of US-made hardware had to be taken out of the country and no government official is allowed to touch them. Um, another thing is uh, uh, Russia's two years ago uh, decision that all data that international platforms have on Russian citizens have to be stalled locally in Russia. So. Um, what we're seeing here is that the state also has the capacity, and we're seeing already experiments that they're not just fighting uh, a difficult battle, they're actually getting empowered by the platforms. Moving on to the third scenario, um, and that would be the scenario of a decentralized world, a world in which uh, uh, power is not centralized in either governments or big companies, but given back to citizens. Now this was of course the, the, the original dream of the internet and we all said, we've all seen how that didn't work. But I think there are quite a few trends now and mostly technological trends, but also social trends, that point in this direction. Uh, the most obvious example and which has gotten a lot of attention recently is Bitcoin. Um, more interesting than Bitcoin of course is, is the technology behind it, blockchain with the promise to have uh, uh, 
to, to create decentralized ledgers, in that way circumventing all kinds of central uh, parties like banks, uh, lawyers, uh, states. Um, but this, is, I think, is also still just one piece of a puzzle. And if you look at a range of things, I'm not, I don't have that much time uh, left, um, see, but if you uh, just mention them, the whole range of po more powerful encryption, yeah, which is making it more, more difficult for either companies or governments to find out what individual citizens are doing, is another example in this direction. Uh, the rise of mesh networks, uh, providing internet uh, in ways without government control or without companies, but simply by uh, citizens opening up their telephones. Um, the DAO, the Distributed Autonomous Organization, this was actually a company, uh, a new type of company without any employees, just smart contracts. Um, and recently, I think the most interesting uh, uh, development in this field is the rise of ICOs, uh, initial coin offerings. Um, and this promises to be, these are, well, just uh, offerings of digital cryptocurrency. And they're meant to provide the, um, the, the motivation for people to work within a decentralized internet. And there's a whole range of, 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 of domains made safe focuses on creating uh, cloud computing without what I mentioned, uh, the way Amazon and Microsoft are doing it now. Uh, Golem uh, does the same thing for uh, computing power. And there's a whole range of domains where ICOs, so these, these, these cryptocurrencies, are incentivizing people to build the structures for an internet that's completely decentralized, that no power holds. Well, uh, let me round that up. I mean, uh, the, um, just to, so I think that there are these three scenarios. And I think all three of them are still possible. They're, 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 there's, it's not clear that either one of them will necessarily dominate, not even the most powerful currently. Um, I think there's a parallel here with uh, 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 perhaps your work on uh, different organization models of state, market, and commons. Uh, but I think uh, that shows at least the, the strength of these different types of uh, uh, models. And I think this helps to explain the different types of battles that are going on globally. So whether it's China and Google fighting since 2008 is, I think, two fighting over two types of organization of the internet. When Google tries to um, um, build offshore data centers in international waters, it's also a struggle of industry versus state. Um, uh, and there's a whole range of, I think, different types of conflicts that can be understood through these different models of organizing the internet. Thank you. Thank you, Haroon. So again, I think some really important points. So those three scenarios, uh, the market, the state, uh, a decentralized civil, it's not whether it's civil society or also maybe sort of decentralized uh, entrepreneurs um, that, that could be using those technologies. What I find interesting in your first scenario is uh, where Jose was starting out by saying that if we follow this big tech scenario, then these five companies, they will um, uh, sort of organize the infrastructure of the internet. But what you're saying is that it's not just the internet that, that those platforms are organizing. It's also all kinds of traditional industries like the car industry, which is moving towards maybe autonomous vehicle industry uh, or, or the news industry or the grocery industry, right? They're all... Um, in danger, or, or I don't know if that's the right word, but they all could be taken over by platformization uh, with a strong role of these central platforms. But there's other two scenarios as well. We'll, we'll come to that um, in the discussion. What I want to do now is take out a few of the things that, that you've said, and Jose, if you want to go to the, to the next slide. Um, we have formulated three questions based on, on, on your contributions, and I would like to give 
uh, all three of you uh, the opportunity also to react to each other um, by zooming in into in three different aspects. And the first one that I wanted to bring out is is the question that's on the screen right now. So, what exactly is new um, in the organization of these platforms? Right, we've I've been to discussions on uh, the rise of platform societies, and there's always been people in in the in the audience. Maybe you yourself have this question as well, saying, "But what's new?" Right? It's it's isn't it just the same but with a different label. So what is new in, in what, we've, what, what you've all described um, here? Who would like to start that off? Sure. <laughs> Thanks, still works. Uh, what is new um, in platforms from the perspective of institutions? Well, I think what is particularly new is that in this online infrastructure, there's you know, certain mechanisms that we don't see. They're invisible. They're hidden behind, you know, either business models or algorithms that we don't know. So this intransparency is something that uh, is very, very new. The second thing that is new is that um, platforms most are sort of built in, um, have the tendency to scale globally. That is new. Most of our institutions are actually national, and national institutions tend to um, uh, have built in, uh, a built-in perspective, a built-in value system that is based on nations and national uh, institutions. So that is also new, and that's incredibly important, because if the mechanisms and the uh, uh, technology is um, tending to scale globally, you know, taking network effects into account, then we certainly have a problem with institutions that are based on our, uh, not only our legal frameworks that are nationally based, but also, you know, all kinds of institutions that are based on norms and laws that are anchored within societies as we know them. Right. Haroon, would you like to comment on that? Um, yeah, I think, um, so I mentioned, I think platforms can take on different types of models, yeah, the, the three I mentioned, but looking specifically at platforms, I think there's, there's, there's something else I'd like to add about what characterizes them. Um, I think they follow the logic of, of, of the internet, which is very different from the, the physical world, and I think in essence, and that transforms the relationship with, with, with users, is on the internet there are no finished products. This is a glass, and until we break it down, it's, it's going to remain a glass. And on the internet, everything is always a semi-finished product. Whether you get something, you may, you may think that you're on a platform, but there's always some, an algorithm busy trying to use that platform, and then an algorithm to, to use that one again. So everything, nothing is ever finished on the internet. Um, which means that the relationship with people on the platform also changes dramatically. Someone can sell this to me, I go out of the, uh, out of the shop and it's mine and it's over. But what a, what a platform says, I invite you to this half-finished product, come into it, we're gonna change, get a new version, you're also part of that new version because everything you feed into it, it's, it's not like I'm using it, everything you feed in it gets put into the product as well. And so basically this, the platform stays with you forever and keeps changing by using yourself in it. I mean, that's how, how Netflix works, right? It's, you watch it, and by the way you watch it, you get new things back. Um, and I think that is different from, say, any types of markets we've known in the past. The most interesting example recently was, that shows this is uh, the difference between Tesla and the traditional car maker. We've had the hurricane uh, uh, erupting. What did Tesla do to help people? They remotely 
change the software in cars so all the cars could suddenly drive way far, further away what they normally could do, which I think shows the difference between just selling someone a car and somehow getting into this intimate right. service where you're right. in an intimate relationship where they're always with you. And that, that is something, being a user on a platform is different than a consumer on a market. That's so that. we have uh, global institutions and the way they set uh, their rules uh, is, is opaque. It happens in a black box. Um, and they can also continuously change those rules without us, you know, once we've entered the ecosystem, uh, have, have much control uh, over that. Um, Frederick, maybe to continue with you, because um, I think what, what I find interesting in your presentation is that um, it also seems that um, huh, what, what platforms do, what is new, is they centralize and decentralize at the same time, and also, maybe or maybe not, sort of create new categories, right? right. Especially if you look at, at labor, we tend to think in employers, employees, and now something new is happening, maybe. Well, as it is with, with any new institution, and as you mentioned, with, with, with the print or the traditional printing press migrating to platform, first migrating to the internet as general and then to platforms, is that the power structure changes here. Or, you know, the surplus is creating from creating these news is, is being changed. And this is something we've seen in the past as well. Trade unions were invented because this is what happened in society. You had one way of producing stuff and a new one came up and the people working had other opinions of how the, you know, the growing pie was to be distributed. But I think you went into the logic of the internet because this is what I think, like what is new with platforms. What was the logic of the internet in the late 90s? Well, the internet would lead to more perfect competition. We would surf around and shop stuff. And in Sweden, it was a, you know, a big IT bubble like here too, I assume. People were gonna buy everything on the internet, but the internet wasn't quite ready for everyone to buy stuff. So I remember my dad bought a pair of pants he was very disappointed in from back then. That's uh, a joke. Uh, <laughs> but what is, and we, we have touched upon this a little bit, but what's really interesting from competition economics point of view is that platforms are a new logic in how monopolies are created. They are platform monopolies or data monopolies in somehow. And this is due to, as you know, the network effects involved in platforms. You, have, you, can, you can build a platform, but if no one is there, you're gonna, you know, it's not gonna be a very successful platform. You have to have a critical mass of users supplying services or input or whatever in order to get more users. So everyone is on Facebook because everyone is on Facebook. Controvert same thing with Google. Google is an excellent search engine because it gets better all the time the more data we feed into it. So, and they have reached these positions, you know, probably not, hopefully, not doing anything illegal, but still they are there and there are very high entries, barriers to entry there. So what we will see is, I think, is platforms have a very strong tendency to form strong oligopolistic markets, and this will be shown in uh, how the bargaining power within those transactions are done. And newspaper industry is, of course, suffering immensely from loss of uh, revenue from advertising and from the quality content institutions that we have had up to make sure of that. But, and of course, they are internationally scalable in a way we might not have seen before, especially on the labor platforms. That is very, very interesting. Uh, and this, you know, it spurred competition on local markets. So in Stockholm, you know, all the comp competing taxi companies to Uber have created, you know, they've, they had apps before, but the new ones are much better. The problem is that Taxi Stockholm app doesn't work in Utrecht, which is a shame. It's a good app and they have a collective agreement. 
But, but what we have to remember also is what's, what's not new about platforms. I think we have to think about that as well. And then we get into the issue of are people working on platforms, entrepreneurs setting, you know, working in a free market, or are the platforms, in fact, employers who are highly digitalized or algorithm employers, what we see. And I think also in that, the centralized decision making that is required for many of these transactions to take place are very much the old way an employer works. They are telling you you have to be there that time because if, for instance, the food delivery platform is saying, you know, we have totally liquid labor force, they wouldn't have enough people working those shifts when they actually need deliveries to be done and the consumers don't like that. So I, when you say, is everyone going to be the freelancer? No, I don't think so. I think a freelancer should be, you know, out there negotiating contracts, finding clients, they can use platforms to do so. And I think there are platforms that are indeed are more of a free market nature, but these are not the platforms for the standardized transactions that we use to buy taxi cabs or get our food delivered to us. Those transactions are very, very standardized and require a very highly coordinating platform. Right. So what you're saying is that so, so not everything is new. Right? There you would say many of those people working for platforms are still employees. Yeah. But what's new is that uh, their conditions for their working conditions are governed by algorithms. Or, yeah. or, or a lot of their requirements for the work is set in algorithms. And that brings me to the next, uh, the second question, if you could, could move around, because, and that's something that Jose also so mentioned, um, many of those algorithms, uh, they are a black box. Uh, we don't really know what's in those algorithms. And currently, they're set up uh, on the other side of the Atlantic uh, in Silicon Valley. So how, as a, a society uh, in the Netherlands, in, in Europe, uh, with also a different tradition politically, uh, thinking about labor relations, for example, how can we get influence over what's, what's happening in that, that, that black box? Um, Haroon, um, I think when we were preparing this, you said, well, there is actually, there is a lot of, of, of examples happening already where yeah. uh, so Dutch, oh, European society is trying to get control back. Can you say a bit more about that? Yeah, I think there's a range of, of fields where, particularly in Europe, but I think globally there is, there is increasing uh, <coughs> local political pressure on the power of these platforms. Um, you can think of, indeed, the uh, European Union uh, setting fines. Uh, uh, landmark case was Microsoft earlier, but I think there's really momentum building now for all of the big companies to uh, uh, be fined, taxed, and uh, potentially uh, uh, to change the way they operate their business here. But it's all around Uber, of course, the many examples. Um, think of... Uh, uh, the way this city like Amsterdam deals with Airbnb, uh, uh, a company that actually has a very different approach to places than that Uber. They're not just coming in to fight, but they try to discuss. And that means that all kinds of local rules can be adopted within uh, uh, that system. But think also of... Um, the, the, the German concern for privacy, which already has uh, an impact on Google Street View, which wants to uh, 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 create a, a view on, on every spot in Germany and, and, and the government doesn't want. So I think there's a range of uh, fields where uh, you already see that a lot of local pressure and local traditions or customs are uh, beating up against uh, these platforms. Um, and I think that there is, uh, this has actually a, a chance of, of truly transforming them. It's, it's not at all clear that these platforms can uh, uh, remain as powerful as they are currently. 
Right, because do you see a shift there? Because initially they were heralded as this is the sharing economy, they're innovation, and everybody who doesn't like them, you know, you're a dinosaur and you shouldn't uh, even be part of this discussion. Um, it seems that we're veering a bit more yeah. critical towards them. Yeah, and I think that's, that, that has also a lot of historical parallels. I mean, it, of course, at first they bring something new and they are innovative and they say we need all these data because that's the only way we can provide these services. But I think their arguments are starting to sound more hollow or at least people are, 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 answer, uh, are putting, um, asking more questions about that. And we shouldn't forget um, uh, the power of a company like IBM in the past was very similar to the power Google has currently. Um, uh, but even car makers like General Motors and uh, the big three of Detroit, very comparable to that. And we've seen policies. Uh, Standard Oil was broken up, uh, AT&T was broken up, um, and, uh, uh, and even threat of certain type of fines, for instance, made IBM change policy, which opened the door right. uh, so to competitors. Right, so we could be moving towards a direction, which yeah. is sort of uh, government control, breaking up monopolies. Jose, um, have you seen also other strategies? Well, yeah, um, you know, besides legal frameworks and legal um, uh, battles that we've seen over the past few years, I think we should also look at the local level and actually the institutional level that is important in these negotiations. For instance, take schools. You know, any school that uh, accepts the, um, uh, the terms of service that Google imposes on them or Apple imposes on them, I think they should think twice before they prefer convenience and uh, free over um, privacy, for instance, and a lot of other public values. So even in those smaller or local institutions, we should, and that's what I call, you know, my, my uh, uh, negotiation would start with putting public values first. Because if you define for any kind of institutions what your public values are, on the basis of that, you can start your negotiations with the platform providers that are offering their services. But if you have no clue as to, you know, in terms of this black box, what their business model is, how you give away your data, how you deal with, um, uh, you know, the data flows that you're simply um, adding more data to, then if you don't stand on these principles of what public values you know you prefer then there's you know nothing to negotiate about because you will everyone is addicted to free and to convenience right yeah um, I'm having a look at the time. We have 15 minutes left. Um, we had one more question, but I'm going to leave that for the very end for the three of you, because I also wanted to give all of you a chance to pitch in, in some questions. So I'm opening up the floor. Um, does anyone have a question? Yeah, I see a few here. I come to you first, and then you, and then you. Thank you. So all three of you have talked about uh, the battle between these platform, uh, these platforms and established interests. And uh, Professor Van Dyke especially, you've talked about negotiations, so I wonder uh, how would you distinguish between legitimate public values versus something like uh, naked rent seeking, something that you would not want to, uh, in an ideal world, admit to the table of negotiation? Is the, is the question clear? Sure, yeah, I, I just, I missed your last question, the, the brand value, sorry, I didn't hear that correctly. No, how would you uh, distinguish between legitimate public values and something like uh, rent seeking? Do you have a way to distinguish those? Yeah. Can you give an example of the last, okay. what is rent seeking? Yes, rent seeking would be the, uh, the desire of one interest group to, uh, 
to maximize its own position relative to right. other uh, elements of society, for example, okay. in a way that would not benefit the whole. Sure. So how do we balance collective versus public values? Is that, is that how you could reframe it? Well, yeah, it's a complicated question, but let me give an, perhaps we, we can give an example that may um, uh, illustrate that. And it's an example that I actually steal from Martijn, because in, in the book it's in his chapter. Um, but it's on the local level uh, and the city of Sao Paulo, and that may illustrate what you mean here. Uh, Sao Paulo, you know, when Uber became, an, uh, when Uber tried to enter Sao Paulo as a city, the city government decided um, to uh, in, in sort of instrumentalize a credit system. And they first defined what their public values were. The city was coping with a lot of problems. There were traffic jams, there was too much traffic in the downtown area. Uh, people would not, you know, uh, handicapped people needed to be transported and they had a lot of uh, female unemployment. So what they did is they started a credit, uh, credit system that actually gave credits to all the platforms, public or private, nonprofit or whoever was offering, um, and on the basis of their public uh, values decisions, they gave out those credits. So they lowered their prices in case you uh, trans you transported handicapped people to certain areas beyond the downtown area. Um, they decided that 15% of those credits would be set aside for female and uh, female taxi drivers. So instead of starting to deal with uh, with these platforms right away, they first decided what their public value uh, were, were, and on the basis of that, they de de uh, designed more or less its uh, uh, value, you know, uh, design on the basis of public values, they designed that credit system. And I think I think what's important in relation to your question is that it was uh, the democratically elected uh, government that set the public values, right? Not a, a special interest group that said these we these are public values that are just serving our public interest group. But it was uh, the the government that was the uh, democratically elected. They set the public values and transferred them into. Uh, into into code uh, in, in in this case. Um, question over here. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. I would like to quote actually Jose. So so the overriding uh, question is probably uh, do platforms bypass other institutions? And then a quote was essentially how can we actually ensure that we have fair and democratic society? In, 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 yeah, basically against the backdrop of all these new developments. And what I'm wondering is actually in the whole discussion, actually, do these services do any good? Nobody of you is talking about that. It's all about, let's say, issues and so on. And actually, what I would like to raise is, aren't these developments actually a rejection of uh, institutions and values in many countries which were pursued actually for like say decades and now people are actually happy to get rid of this. Like for instance, I'm living in Joburg. Nobody would ever take a public taxi. Uber was, it, it, you must see what Uber is doing actually in, in, in South Africa and Joburg and the traditional taxi drivers, they are burning down on the cars and killing the people basically in the business. So actually for me, my view is that this is decentralization. I agree very much to what actually Haroon said, and it's, it, it, it's, a, it's a boon actually, and only then I look actually at so, the so, so the So the question is, do those, so to what extent do those platforms provide public values? 
yeah, actually they replace in, in many Place. instances, let's say, public values. And, and obviously I agree fully to that point. What is actually public value? Who decides on that? Yeah. Yeah. So. Can I start with that? Yeah. Because the unions are usually the ones who are tech pessimists. But, but we, we are definitely not, and I want to make that clear. My example of Stockholm, you know, taxi fleet has increased a little bit with better platforms, and perhaps the drivers are slightly friendlier after Uber came in because of the rating systems that were introduced. Um, but absolutely, Uber has probably raised the quality and safety of taxi in many countries. Uh, I myself, I have actually taken Uber in countries where I felt safe for doing that. Um, but it's, if we come back, you talk about rent seeking as well, and it, it, it pertains to it. Facebook makes it more, perhaps more easier for people to read news, but if you reject an institution that makes sure that the quality of news is good, it's not fake news, then that's a problem. But Facebook, in this case, I think, is probably also a rent seeker because they are profiting of content they are not paying for. And what's really interesting, well, I mean, what we want to do is we want to incorporate the platforms into the collective bargaining regime, meaning that we can form a cartel against them. The new, there's several newspaper corporations in the United States that have applied for an exemption to competition law, meaning they want to form a cartel against Google and Facebook. But the purpose is to get some of that ad revenue because they are providing content. And they probably want to say in how news are edited on Facebook, what is allowed and what's not as quality news. So a little bit on the second, because I didn't get to answer the second question. I think that competition law is something we have to rethink. If we want to regulate these platforms, it's very hard. Let the stakeholders have a say, but then you must allow the stakeholders to have an even in bargaining power somehow. Arun, would you like to, to answer the question? Um, yeah, so it's a lot of big issues raised here. Um, so the, whether they replace public values and what's the space for that? I, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, for me, I see a lot of benefits that these companies also provide. And in a sense, you can say, well, many institutions, they're just a wrapped up way of something people want, and if they can get it in a different way, it's also just simply a question of how to organize it towards them, and should we still do it in ways that were invented many decades ago? So um, I would be a bit more uh, hesitant to, to, to judge that immediately. I'd see a, a few things happening. First is I think, um, against this rent seeking, there's also a movement now to try to withdraw from them. We're seeing it, and it's not that these traditional parties can easily win that way, but at least newspapers are saying we don't want to be on this platform anymore. We're building up walls. I think important was recently when Disney said they're pulling all their content of Netflix. They're basically saying we make the content and you're not going to be the one who profits from this. So perhaps this is something bigger. Um, withdrawing uh, their uh, others who seek rent from their uh, business. Um, I'm not sure, but maybe that's a question you have more answer to. I'm, I, what I find very difficult is to imagine, it seems to me the power that these companies have over different domains is so great, I don't know who could control that. So Facebook says we're not a news company, but still they, they change, show our news. But then in response, when we're get, we get angry, they say, well, we're going to edit the news. I'm not sure if I'm happy about that as well, if they tell me what's fake or not. So who could do that? Who has the... You know, it, uh, this is the big, you know, the, the hundred million dollar question, of course. Who can, you know, if you don't allow these big five companies to, to censor the news, basically, yeah. who is allowed to do that? And basically, as a society, we should do that. And it should be a democratic decision. The way that institution, the news organizations are, you know, institutionalized means that at least, the, at the very least, we get 
insight into their decision making. And that, I think, is the problem with a lot of platforms, that they don't give neither users nor consumers nor advertisers any insight in how their decisions are made. And that is my problem with platforms, not that they're you know, being competitive towards news organization, that always, has always been the case, not that they're connecting news to advertisers, have always done that. But the fact that they're so intransparent about who takes those decisions, for me, is a problem. Thanks. We have time for two more questions. I'll take, I'll take both of them, and then, uh, and then you can answer them. Here's the first question. Um, if I could take a, a slightly different angle on, um, on public values. Um, now, we acknowledge, I mean, I, I think Professor Van Dyke began by referring to the important public service that the media performs, right? And we gather news with regard to legislation, also judicial decisions that may be uh, perhaps unwise would be criticized in the press. Uh, we also gather data about what the populace thinks through polls, and, and many organizations like Pew are you know, sound and well-organized, and they've been gathering information for decades. Um, now, if we go to the, go to the platforms, uh, one thing I'm just thinking, when uh, a journalist, Kevin Kelly at Wired, that has a, a text on, on, on these developments, he says that he asked, he, he spoke with Larry Page in the 90s, and he said uh, to him, well, another search engine, really? Aren't there enough search engines? Isn't this boring? And Larry Page said, oh, it's not a search engine. We're gathering data to build artificial intelligence. And if you look at Facebook and Google as gathering data about how humans behave everywhere in the world, could we, um, uh, could we turn the legal system into a platform uh, that gathers data directly, not through polls, not through journalists, but uh, directly from human behavior uh, with a transparent algorithm because the, the, the legislatures and the courts would be responsible to, uh, to the citizens uh, and use basically the same model uh, to create laws, transform what people think about general uh, developments in society as shown through Facebook and Google or other platforms uh, and then create legislation. So that, that's, uh, I think that's a really clear question. Okay, thanks. We'll, we'll park that for one minute. I'll also take your question because you've had your hand up for quite some time. Thank you. Um, I have a comment or question that is similar to the big data question that was just raised. Um, I would like to ask you whether you think these platforms may actually put the formation of public values at risk. And I'm referring to what I've heard a Google developer call the social layer of the internet, where he was talking about the plans of Silicon Valley to shape the internet in a way that you would only see what you're interested in. So they would use the data they are gathering through Facebook to basically create a completely personalized exp experience of the internet. Now, I personally find this very dangerous. <laughs> because people may then just not, never change their mind anymore because they just don't get in touch with other opinions. But I would like to hear what you think about this. Okay, thanks. So one question about artificial intelligence and the other one, sorry, we don't have any time anymore. And the other one is uh, the, the question about, about the filter bubble. If, if those platforms are becoming so prominent, are we even able to uh, discuss public values in the ways that, that, that we used to? Um, who would like to react to this? Well, that's 
uh, that's one of the you know most difficult questions because all the, the data that we're generating constantly each day each of us you know for uh, to feed those big machines of course um, they seem to be ours those data but the data flows that we're constantly generating they not only are exported to companies overseas over which we have n no jurisdiction at all but at the same time and by the same means um, the algorithms or the um, uh, processing techniques by which these data are uh, processed, they're proprietary. So even if we would make the, the data public, we would not own or uh, we would not be able to operate the very processing mechanisms by which they are mined and by which they are. So indeed the question of you know the creation of a social layer on top of the infrastructural uh, mechanisms or the infrastructural platforms that we have seen being developed right now, that I think is the big question in the future. To give you one example, just recently the um, uh, Google DeepMind, DeepMind is uh, a subsidiary now owned by Google in uh, the United Kingdom. Um, they, very interestingly, they connected to the five, big five London NHS hospitals, which are public hospitals, and they own data, you know, for many years of their patients, which are very private data. By well, actually, what what Google offered to them is to um, not just you know to ask for their data, but they offered them very important algorithms and very important processing mechanisms to develop uh, uh, pharmaceutical um, aids. So, and this was a trade-off that has been very much criticized and is now under scrutiny by um, uh, some of the agencies. But this is the typical deal that we're constantly facing. Like, if you, you can give away your data, but beyond that, you're giving away the knowledge and had the deep mind knowledge, the, the, um, uh, the processing by which these data become valuable. And that is the constant trade-off. You know, we, we think we can give it away for free. We think we can uh, exchange that for convenience and free pharmaceutical remedies, et cetera, et cetera. But we only think about that in the short, short term, because in the long term, we're giving away a lot of these you know, public values we no longer have any control over. And that, I think, is the big question that's going to be asked, uh, going to be very important in the future. Pertaining to, to private data and so on, that is, of course, very important for, for us to make sure that our members are not giving away information that's sensitive. For instance, information if they are union members or not, that's something that's protected in, in the Swedish constitution. But, I mean, this is a difficult question because giving up personal data might actually produce a lot of benefits to society and to ourselves in, in medicine, for instance. Uh, but on the other hand, it could produce a lot of bad, and there's no transparency of where my data is going where. So maybe we, there should be a bigger discussion is in how can we make the data I'm giving up more transparent to me? What kind of rights can I have around information of how my data is being used? Uh, and this is something that's been discussed in the European Parliament quite a lot, and hopefully the EU with the GDPR directive will go in a more direction where you start looking at this. If I know how my data is being used, perhaps I am more comfortable giving it up. And if I can be comfortable knowing that it's handled by, you know, safely and privately and not people looking up exactly who I am and what I'm doing. Okay. Thanks. Um, 
I think I'm afraid that uh, that time is up. Um, so we have to break up the conversation here. Uh, although I feel we're we've just started. We've scratched on on so many things. I've, I think we've started a really interesting discussion on uh, platforms as a new institution, not just single platforms, but platforms as an as ecosystems, uh, which have numerous new characteristics. Uh, the, the fact that they're governed by algorithms that are constantly changing, algorithms that we don't really have uh, much control or, or um, insight into how they operate, and that leaves lots of questions to society at large as how we deal with them. And we've, we've just started to think about that um, and the various scenarios through which these could play out, through a market, through a state approach, or maybe through a decentralized um, approach. Um, I would say much food for thought uh, for um, during the next uh, social event. Um, I want to thank you very much for being here, and I would like to thank our panelists, Jose, Haroon, and Frederick very much for enlightening us with their vision. Thank you so much. Thank you.